Gifts to the Church series. And the big picture thing of this really is the we find our identity and our purpose and our meaning and our significance and our story within the big story of God. And the big story of God is the story of the mission of God. God is gathering, gathering for himself a people from every everything, every tribe, every tongue. And he's gathering for himself his people by taking them out of darkness and bringing them into light. And Jesus comes into the story at the kind of pinnacle, the high point, if you like, as the light of the world. He comes and he tells us he came to seek and save the lost, to make a way for people from all nations, Jews and particularly relevant for most of us, I would suspect in this room, Gentiles, to be added into the people of God. And the church then, as established at Pentecost, continues the work of Jesus. And Jesus, just before he ascended, says to his disciples, to the church, to us, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he leaves us with what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And this then, this big story, these commands, this Finding our story within this story, this is what we're all about. That's why we frame it here and talk about it like this. We exist to make disciples, family members, and missionaries of all nations to the glory of God. And to do that effectively and with joy and with a sense of ease, Jesus gives of himself gifts, gifts of himself, to his people, to the body, to the church. And as we looked at in Romans 12 series, everyone is gifted. All have got a part to play somewhere. And for some, the part that they play, because the gifts they've been given, is a leadership one. And so the first apostles, they went out doing the Matthew 28 stuff. They planted churches as the best ways of making disciples of all nations. And into those churches, they appointed elders. And elders have the responsibility, the task of shepherding, of overseeing, and of guarding the local church. And we looked at that last week. And there's a a key phrase that I'm not sure if Dave said exactly, but I'm going to say it now. I think it's important that we grasp this. All elders are leaders, but not all leaders are elders. Let me say that again. All elders are leaders, but not all leaders are elders. For the church to function fully and healthily, there is a necessity of different leadership gifts that are required and needed to be operating and functioning well. And that's where we land in Acts chapter 6. And so far in the story of Acts, the early church, there's great power and some incredible things and great joy and great unity and explosive growth. And then there's a few challenges and Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira and all that kind of stuff and not so much fun. And there's a bit of challenge and a bit of persecution. And by Acts 6, we face something completely new and completely different that happens 
as churches grow, there's a strain and there's a stretch. Let's look at it. Verse one of Acts six. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full power of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and a whole bunch of other guys whose names you can read yourself. These... They set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now I want to be careful about reading ourselves too closely into this story because Acts 6 is not about New Community Church. I mean, I wish it were. I wish Acts really was the story of our church, the devotion, the kind of commitment to the Lord, the devotion to one another, to prayer, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the kind of generosity that no one had any need amongst them and the daily the Lord added to their number. Oh man, that's what, this is what we dream of. This is what we long for. But Acts 6 is not directly about us. And yet there are some, I guess, similarities and there's certainly some lessons that we can learn here. You see, in any church that takes the Great Commission seriously, in any church that wants to build a diverse church with people from different languages and different nations and therefore different cultures, any church that wants to multiply and push into new areas, any church that's prepared to change as the Holy Spirit leads? Is any church that isn't just prepared to do the comfortable thing and settle, even perhaps sometimes the seemingly sensible thing, in any church like that, there's going to be tension. Any church that grows, there's going to be stretch and tension. Now, we are kind of post-pandemic, and it would not be true to say we've had explosive growth post-pandemic, but prior to it, in the five years or so, this church, across all its different expressions, doubled in size. That brings a whole load of stretch and tension. It's not been quite the same since. Some people have gone. But what we have had is lots and lots of new people arrive and come amongst us. If you are one of those, you are so welcome. Genuinely love having you here. We're in this period of reshaping. And all of this, what I've just shared, has an impact. We see it here in Acts chapter 6. There's a tension. There's a problem. So in these next few minutes, I just want to spend some time looking at some lessons that we can learn from Acts chapter 6 and apply it to our situation here. And the first lesson we see from this passage is that there was a level of honesty about the reality of the situation. Look at verse 1. It says, a complaint arose. There was no pretending that everything's okay. A community that is marked by the gospel, a community that understands the grace of God is a community that is honest about the issues, whether that's personally that you're facing in your own life or corporately the issues we're facing together. We here at New Community, we're not trying to pretend to be something we're not. One of the things I do find amusing in church life is when someone points out to me all the things, or not necessarily all the things, just a thing that they've discovered that is wrong, as if they've just discovered something dramatic. And uh, I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> what do you mean you know? How can you possibly know and still allow it to happen? 
Well, welcome to church. It doesn't take a huge leadership gift to spot where there are problems or where there are stretch or issues of tension. It just requires a pair of eyes and an ability to remember the information long enough to tell somebody else. And even if you're one of those few people, I'd, I'd love it if there was loads of people like this, even if you're one of those people who doesn't think there are any issues here, you've arrived and you think, new community is like the perfect church. I've just arrived, there is no problems here whatsoever. I mean, God bless you, I love you. But even if you think that, it doesn't mean that there's not. Like look here, we see that in verse one, the Hellenists complained. The Hebrews, they didn't. They thought everything was okay. <laughs> the whole group of people who are like thinking everything's fine, but the Hellenists, they're the ones who complained. And this is crucially important. Whilst the Hebrews weren't the ones who felt it, they didn't deny it either. They didn't go, oh no, 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 everything's fine here. Now the specifics of Acts 6 are that there is a certain section of the church feeling neglected or feeling overlooked. And that, if we're honest, is still a reality for us today. Now, in our context, it can manifest itself in any number of ways. If you've been around for a while, it can suddenly feel like you're kind of a bit out of the loop. I used to know stuff, and now I don't know stuff. I used to know everyone, and now I don't really know everyone. Or if you're new, it can feel like it's kind of hard to get involved. Sure, people are super friendly for about weeks, two, three, four, if you're lucky, five and six, and then you become familiar. And they're like, everyone was really friendly, and now not so much, because they're now friendly to other new people. And I feel a little bit like... Is this quite what I thought it was? And, where, and you can kind of feel a little bit neglected or overlooked. You're not entirely sure of how you fit. Or you can hear, or you be in a church like us and you just hear this talk all the time at the moment about communities and you're not in one. And it feels a bit like, ooh, am I are you just having a go at me? Or am I, how do I fit here and how's that work? Or I suppose, truthfully, you might be in one, but it's, yours is nothing like the ones that they talk about from the platform. Why is everyone going on about these communities? Mine's frankly like, okay, I'm not going to say that, but it's not great. And I feel a bit neglected or a bit overlooked. For some, neglected or overlooked means you feel like you're exhausted. Like you're doing loads and no one else seems to be helping. All this talk of using, everyone using their gifts and it doesn't feel like everyone is which is, for example, why our teams are feeling stretched. Not have enough musicians. Like, truthfully, you just don't have enough musicians. And I don't believe that there are not enough musicians in the church. We don't have enough. And so you think, I'm playing again. I mean, I don't know how many weeks in a row Josh serves, but every week he's here, there, or somewhere. He's probably on crash in the weeks he's not doing those things. Or you're on a kid's team. I think, I have to step in again, because... Again, there's another stretch. I'm on way more than I should. And it makes you feel a little bit like neglected or overlooked. Or on the other side of that issue, you might be sitting here and thinking, you know what, I've got all these gifts. I can do that, but I just don't really know how to get involved. It's not obvious, it's not clear. I don't really know how to use the gifts I have. How does that work? How do I get involved in that? It can lead you feeling a bit neglected or overlooked, a bit frustrated. For others, being overlooked or neglected, that feeling of tension and stretch can feel a bit like, I hear all this talk about nations and diversity and being a church of every, every kind of thing and all of that kind of stuff. And I love that vision, but I don't feel that reality. I don't feel like I'm either fully represented perhaps or fully free to be everything that I am. And I feel a bit constrained and it can feel a bit frustrated or it's kind of like, I don't feel like everything we talk, I don't feel like we quite live in that place yet. 
whether that's worship or leadership or culture or whatever it is, it can have that tension, that stretch. For others, being overlooked can feel like disappointment. Like you think something's going to work out in a particular way, and it doesn't. And this is really important because disappointment is faith shattering. And unless disappointment is dealt with, it leads to cynicism. And cynicism is deadly. There is no such thing as healthy cynicism. Cynicism is a thief and a liar, and it robs and it destroys. And ultimately, it sucks faith. And the reason why this is crucially important to address is because the Bible tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. Disappointment sucks faith, leads to cynicism, lack of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That needs to be addressed. Now, of course, you might be sitting here thinking, man, I genuinely thought this was a great church. Now you, like, what is going on? Or you might be sitting here thinking, I don't feel any of those. But just like the Hebrews, there are Hellenists somewhere. There's a level of honesty we see here. We're not trying to pretend to be something we're not. What's the second thing we see? They address the issue. They didn't ignore it, didn't dismiss it, didn't pretend it didn't exist. They addressed it. Now listen, it is not a weakness to admit that there are challenges and tensions and stretch. It is not a weakness to admit that in your own life. It is not a weakness to admit that in corporate life either. It is a reality. Every individual in this room is both needy and needed. Corporately, we're the same. We're not perfect, far from it. We've got all sorts of issues. So they did something, Acts 6, they did something about it. Now the presenting issue here in Acts 6 was the widows being neglected in the distribution of food. But actually, we've got to ask the question, what's the underlying issue that's really going on here? And there are two things that are going on. And these two things are not in competition with one another. We have, firstly, we have the mission, all right? There's the the kingdom advance, there's the making disciples of all nations that's going on. And then on the other hand, there's community. There's the family aspect of caring for people. And this, these two things are not in competition. This is an age-old tension, and some have a bias one way or the other. We kind of falsely set them up against each other, like I'm an, all about the mission, evangelism, and reaching the lost, and I know I'm a pastor. I'm all about caring for people and pastorally, as if these two things are, are kind of pulling in opposite directions. They are not in competition with one another. They go hand in hand. This is not a problem to be solved. It's a tension that needs to be appropriately managed. Look what they did, verse 2. The 12, that's the leaders, summons the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the leaders gather everyone together and say the solution, the answer, is not to cut back on the preaching of the word. Now, just to be very clear, they are not saying that serving is beneath them, all right? That's not it at all. Leaders, elders, apostles, whatever, are like Christ in the sense that they are not here to be served, but to serve. Leaders who don't serve aren't leaders in any biblical sense of the word. Now, of course, that looks different in different ways and different things. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And those who are in leadership roles within the life of the church or whatever level are merely under shepherds of the chief shepherd. This is not a justification to not do stuff. 
But what they're saying here is there's a recognition that multiple gifts are required for the body to function well. They, as leaders, have a role, a call of God to fulfill, a role to fulfill. And that phrase, preaching the word of God, it's a phrase that is synonymous with mission. We see Luke use it elsewhere in Acts to talk about the mission, the advancing of the kingdom, the mission flourishing in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond. Look, you can see the exact same phrase in verse seven. It says, the word of God continued to increase. We're not gonna give up on the preaching the word of God. The word of God be continued to increase. Their mission advanced. These two things are synonymous. The kingdom, as the preaching of the word is done, the kingdom is extended and the church grows. They're saying, we're not going to cut back on the mission of God. We're not going to cut back on the command to go and make disciples. What do they do? Verse 3, therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you the seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. They didn't get distracted from what they were called, what God had called them to do. They didn't try and do more or wear more hats. Okay, I'll take that on. I'll do that. I'll do that. Instead, they gave away more responsibility and they said, you do it. So we see there's a level of honesty. There's something they do about it. And what they did is they get the right people doing the right things. And as a result, they released more leaders. Now, the job of elders is to shepherd, is to oversee, is to teach, is to lead the church. And part of that is to ensure that the church is functioning as it should. Not doing everything themselves, but functioning as it should. Part of that is guarding mission and guarding community. Ensuring that the mission advances and community is guarded at the same time. Now, no doubt, as this was being shared, some of the people there thought, well, no, you should be giving yourself more time to the people or to the problem or whatever. But instead, no, they didn't do that. They delegated and brought more people into doing the work of ministry. That's the underlying tension between and that we've got here, the challenge and the tension. The, the role of eldership is to guard the church and the mission and not get distracted, not get sidetracked from what God has called them and therefore the church to do. The role of eldership then is to keep that, or one of the roles is to keep that big picture direction in front of the church, that constant reminder that we are part of an ingathering of the elect from every tribe and every tongue. We are part of the ever-increasing kingdom of God that is advancing and not diminishing, has not yet in 2,000 plus years taken a step backwards and nor will it. It is relentlessly moving towards the consummation, the fulfillment of all things when everyone will gather around the throne, people from every tribe, every tongue, every everything. That's where we're heading. Keep that in mind. This is what we are part of. And at the same time, there's a massive urgency to it too. Because people are in darkness, not just in mid-afternoon gloom on a wintry day, in darkness that leads to death. The reality is there's over 150,000 Europeans and we're in the continent of Europe over 150,000 Europeans die every week without Christ. That's 7.8 million a year. Part of the role of guarding the mission and the advance is going, this is what we are part of and we cannot go, ah, it's okay. We'll take our eye off that. We'll do something else. No, this is what we're about. And we keep that why there. And at the same time, we bolster the how. Because a bigger underlying issue of guarding mission for us, and I'm speaking directly to us at New Community, is that post-COVID, the Lord is 
has been reminding us again and again and again through foundation of redigging, going back into the word and also the prophetic direction and promises and things that he has spoken over us, reminding us of the calling that he has put on us and the reshaping to enable us to accomplish that. And that's why we've just drilled down on our, into our purpose. This is why we exist, to make disciples, family members, missionaries of all nations to the glory of God. That's it. Now, that's a fairly broad thing. So there's lots of stuff that fits in underneath that, but that is what we are all about. And that is not just something we want to say, but something we want to do. And as you've heard over many, many weeks, I'm just going to say it again and again and again, that this making of disciples, family members, and missionaries of all nations to the glory of God cannot be done exclusively in meetings on Sundays. Now, I love meetings on Sundays. Like if I could design a, a kind of thing that just absolutely suited me to the ground, it would be spend all week in my study and just spend Sundays just preaching. I'd, I'd like the rest of the stuff, Monday, doing the stuff out there. I'll be honest with you, I'm not so hot on. I'd prefer just to do this. Let me study, talk a good game and do it in here and have everyone's happy. That's not the calling that I can ever just go, yeah, no, that, that's, that'll do for me. Because it's not about that. These, this matters. These moments matter. They absolutely do. These big picture moments, these gathering together, corporately worshiping, hearing from God collectively, the sense of who we are, the body on display. It matters. Of course it does. It always will. But what matters most is what happens matters tomorrow and the next day and the next day as we take the kingdom of God to advance, to push out into the places where we live, work, and play. And this is why we bang on about communities all the time. And we have some challenges here to this. Got some practical challenges. We don't have enough communities, just blunt. Got the challenge that we're not always brilliant at getting everybody who wants to be in a community into a community, partly because we don't have enough and partly because we're just not brilliant. We have some planning challenges. We have some communication challenges. We've probably not always been, not probably, definitely not always been clear on why we do what we do, what we're trying to achieve and all that kind of stuff. But actually our challenge goes deeper than that. The challenge is a challenge to our way of thinking. Because if we change the way we're thinking, do we change the way we act? Because what we're talking about when we talk about communities are groups of people committed to growing as disciples, family members, and missionaries. I'm just going to level with you and be really honest. Not everybody wants that. Because what we're talking about is bigger than just attending a meeting for a couple of hours on a Sunday and maybe a midweek meeting on a Wednesday. Or if you're really radical, a Thursday. It's about life. Done on purpose, with intentionality, with others. You see, being a disciple and a family member requires stepping in. It requires opening your life. It requires making yourself vulnerable. It requires putting other people first. And there's a cost to that. I'm not going to deny it. There's a cost to it. But we believe it's a cost worth paying. I'm pretty sure Jesus at no point said, come follow me and you just add me to everything else you're doing and it's all good and I'll bless it and make it all fine. He said, pick up your cross daily. There's a cost. There's a cost. There's a cost. And the cost is not just I'll sacrifice a few hours on a Sunday morning, which is fine when it's raining and harder when it's sunny. 
And the cost is not just, well, if I have to. The cost is I'm all in with my life. I want to do this to the glory of God and recognizing I can't do it by myself. I need others around me. And truthfully, COVID forced the broad church, and obviously we're part of that, so us too, to assess our measures of success. And that can all be summed up in one little phrase, church growth, and by that I mean more bums on seats on Sundays, church growth is not the same thing as gospel growth. It's just not. And we're not about pursuing church growth, we're about pursuing gospel growth that goes deep and wide. This is what we're part of. We believe that the best way to make disciples is in community and on mission. We believe that the deepest community comes when powered by the Holy Spirit. We can't do this in our own strength. Powered by the Holy Spirit, we are on mission together. We believe that the mission is best served and advanced by communities of disciples and family members demonstrating and living out faith, using the gifts that they have. Yes, some of that will be in here on this platform and all the rest of it, but most of it will take place in the context of where we live, work, and play out there. And we're on a journey increasingly towards this. And part of addressing the issues is reminding the church again, this is the mission. This is what we're about. This is why we're doing this. But part of it is also saying, we need others to step up, to step in and to use their gifts to lead people, to guard community whilst advancing the mission. Because those two things are not mutually exclusive. And Acts 6 is the moment in early church history where this reality of needing and requiring other significant leaders to work alongside the elders is very much required, very much needed. Not just to serve what we already have here, although we need to do that, but to push out far beyond where we already are into new things. And so they pick out, verse three, those of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And verse seven tells us the result. The mission is advanced, community is guarded, disciples are made. Now this is the point I want to make. In recognizing that, in releasing leaders full of the Holy Spirit, and that's so key, full of the Holy Spirit. It's not just people who are half decent or something and think I can do this and do that in your own strength. No, you can't. Full of the Holy Spirit. In doing all of that, it's not just about getting people to perform a function. Fill a slot on a rotor. Tick a box. It's about seeing, this is so important, it's about seeing where God is working in a person's life, recognizing it, calling it out, and releasing it to make a kingdom impact, to fulfill Christ all in all in everything. The out there stuff. This is what we really want to do. Just look at with me for a moment the variety of what the seven chosen do. So we have Stephen and we have Philip. The first two are mentioned. This is the moment of release for them as leaders. Now, presumably up until this point, they've just been faithfully uh, following and perhaps serving and being in the life of the church. But this is the point where they step up and step out into all that God has for them. And that's the point here. We're not just trying to multiply the numbers of, number of leaders, but releasing them to be all that God has called them to be. And that looks different for different people, right? And as that happens, as people step into what God has called you to, some amazing things happen. Look at Stephen, not an elder, 
Just point that out. Stephen, not an elder. In the next few verses, he ends up doing great signs and wonders. He preaches powerfully. He sees the gospel advance. He stays in Jerusalem and he gives himself to preaching of the word. He gives himself to the mission there and he ends up doing it so effectively that the people hate him and he becomes the first martyr, a great witness to the power of God. Philip does something slightly different, empowered by the Holy Spirit, equipped and called by the Holy Spirit. Again, not an elder. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes and be an evangelist in Samaria. You can read about it in Acts 8. He's involved in the spreading the gospel to the nations because it spreads it to Ethiopia. There's this Ethiopian eunuch story who he shares the gospel with. He baptizes him in Acts chapter 8. And then he ends up, he doesn't just stay there. He finds himself moved by the Holy Spirit to Caesarea. And there he's in Caesarea for at least 20 years because he pops up again in Acts 21. Significant kingdom advance as a result of them stepping into the calling that God has for them. Now the other five guys, they're not even mentioned again, which is just as well if you're (laughs) preaching about them and you can't pronounce their names. But these guys, what do they do? They just get on with serving the needs of the people. There are two words used here in Greek, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, but they're two words basically just mean service and to serve. It's like, what needs to be done? Okay, I'll do it. Just get on and meet the needs. And this, I really, honestly, I think this is quite significant because different types of needs and different types of requirements and in the life of the church mean there are different types of roles and different types of leadership required. So the question really, I guess, if you've been thinking and tracking it through, apostles, elders, is are these people here in Acts 6 the deacons that we see mentioned in Scripture? Well, the answer to that in Acts 6 is probably not, actually. Luke has this meticulous attention to detail, and he doesn't say that the seven were deacons. But this was probably the moment where church government, church organization, church structure really began. You know, actually, the Bible doesn't really say much about deacons. We have a passing reference in Philippians 1 to the overseers and deacons. We have a probable reference in Romans 16, verse 1, to Phoebe, who's probably a deaconess. I think she probably is. And we have the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Now, the word deacon just means to serve. In our English kind of language, it's got no more weight than serve in a tennis serve or serve a prison sentence or serve a coffee. just means serve. And there's a general sense in which every Christian is a deacon because every Christian is to serve. Christ is a deacon. Literally, that language there, it says, Christ came not to be served but to deacon, to serve. And we in him are like him. We are here not to be served but to serve. We all serve. But there is also an office of deacon a recognition that some are considered deacons. You see, by the time Paul writes 1 Timothy around AD 64, the church has developed to the point where spiritual qualifications for leaders were specific and needed. And Paul intentionally in 1 Timothy 3 says this is the qualifications for eldership, and then he follows it up and outlines the qualifications for deacons too. And the point is this. The purpose of deacons is inseparably tied to the priority of elders. Elders need to focus on their teaching and prayer roles so that the admission is advanced whilst ensuring that community is guarded. How do they do that? Well, deacons both guard and advance the ministry of the word. They work together, advancing the mission, guarding community, caring for the flock. In our language, making disciples, family members, and missionaries. Now, we see this in a slightly obscure verse in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 to 16. You see, 
Paul in this particular verse makes reference as a sort of an implication that members of the household of Stephanus were elders in Corinth. He says, be subject to them. So he writes to church Corinth, be subject to these people. And then he uses this little phrase, and fellow, their fellow workers, which in the Greek is a, translated as work together with. Be subjected to the elder, these ones, we think probably likely elders, and those who work together with them. Now the implication is there are elders and those who work with the elders to equip the saints, working together to shepherd them, working together to facilitate, administrate, meet the needs so that the mission advances and community is guarded. Where's this land with us at New Community? Because this is a well that needs to be redug. Needs to be done with an element of care. For some, deacon means all, conjures up all sorts of ideas and thoughts and hasn't always necessarily been handled overly well. Even in this church, we have kind of had a little bit of a checkered history with aborted attempts at we stow this and then we don't and then we thought, we're not quite sure. This, we're going to talk more in the autumn term about how more formally deacons can be recognized. But I just want to be very clear. We already have lots of people in this church who already function in a deaconing role. And we're in the process together of just looking a little bit more carefully at what this might look like as one as a key moment is the recognition of deacons, the laying on of hands and the honoring of them. We're gonna move into that. But this is the point for us right now, I'm finishing with this. The lesson for us at this stage in our church story from Acts 6 is that the people took responsibility, they grew in faith and they depended on the Holy Spirit. Now for some here in this room right now, I'm talking to you. There is a calling on your life of God to step into leadership of some level. To lead within the measure of faith, the measure of faith, literally, that's what it says in Romans 12, three, the measure of faith, but also within the measure of gift or talent that you have been given. God has equipped you and gifted you, and there is a moment now where the Holy Spirit, you know, is calling you to step into things. It's been recognized by others, perhaps only in a small way, perhaps in a very exploratory way, there's a moment to begin to step into it. For some, in this room, it will mean moving to places like Samaria, which is the next town along. For some, it will look like moving to the ends of the earth. Maybe not right now, but at some point. But the key part here is everyone's involved. Verse five, it says it pleased the whole gathering. We're all involved. Lots of us are gonna go nowhere. We're here reaching our Jerusalem, which is the place where we live. And some of us have a leadership calling to do that. Don't need to go somewhere else to exercise leadership calling. Stephen stayed in Jerusalem. There's plenty of space here. There's roughly probably about roughly a million people who live in all the places where we live. The stretch, all of where we gather from as a new community. That's an awful lot of people who go and make disciples, family members, and missionaries of. There's hundreds and hundreds of people in our church to pastorally care for and, and build into communities of disciples, family members, and missionaries. There is a big leadership space here to step into. But there's also at the same time, do we require some creative entrepreneurial leadership types to step into gifting in this church? Yes, we do. Do we need some bold and courageous leadership types to kind of go and sense that God's opening a door? We're gonna go for it. It may be that God's with us, is that okay? And the answer to that is 100% that's okay. We need others who get around and go, do all that's in your heart and with your heart and soul. Go for it. Do we need more leaders who are skilled in pastorally caring for people? Yes, we do. 
those who have gifts of mercy, yes we do, those who are anointed worship leaders or just musicians who can lead us into the presence of God, absolutely, yes we do, those with gifts of administration, yes we do, those who can lead us in intercessionary prayer, yes we do, those who have just got very practical leadership skills, yes we do, those who can lead and help shape prophetically, yes we do, those who just see a gap and think, do you know what, something needs to be done here, I'm gonna do it, do we need you? Yeah, we do. Do we need those from different cultural backgrounds to step into leadership roles? And by that, I'm talking about people who don't come from the same cultural background as me to lead in a different way. Yes, we do. I actually think this is a very crucial point. It was the Hellenists who were not the majority culture within the church in Acts 6 from whom the complaint arose. And who did they appoint? Well, all the names of those seven men were Greek names, which means they appointed Hellenists, not from the majority culture or the perceived majority culture to lead. They've appointed leaders from different cultural backgrounds and it pleased everyone, says here, it pleased everyone to see them appointed. Having greater diversity in leadership positions of leading communities, of leading worship, of leading significant ministry areas, of leading, in, leading out there and equipping people in that, having whatever, at every level, it strengthens the whole church. There's a call of God on some of you who do not look like me to step into leadership roles within the life of this church. And you know it and I know it, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit knows it, and he's doing a work. The lesson from this is not pick seven people to do some stuff, it's that all of us, leadership calling or not, have a part to play in serving, helping, rendering assistance, deaconing in that way, using the gifts we've got, and in giving ourselves so that the word of God might increase, the mission might advance. That's the most important thing that you can't miss. Look at verse seven, we'll finish now. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This above all else is our absolute motivation, our absolute dream, our absolute desire that ultimately the gifts and the calling of God should be released to ensure that specific needs, yes, are met here, but more that push out so that many more people might be added to the family, so that we are one step closer to that moment where we will gather around the throne with people from every tribe and every tongue and every everything, so that more increasingly the full wisdom of God might be on display in the earth, that Christ might more fully fill all in all to the glory of God. We need apostles to apostle, elders to eld, leaders to lead. What's God calling you to? What has God gifted you to? What are you passionate about? How might you use those gifts and skills and callings to the glory of God and the extension of the kingdom? What's the Holy Spirit stirring in you? Because quite honestly, if it's nothing, you're not listening. If there's nothing at all, well, we need to have a conversation about salvation again. That sounds very blunt. But if you're alive in Christ, 
the seed of the Holy Spirit is in you. He has gifted you in a unique way to you to use your gifts to the glory of God and the extension of the kingdom. Some in here, we all serve somewhere. There's a basic premise. None of this happens without people serving. Thank you. Talk more about that next week. But most of it out there, what does that look like? To the glory of God. Jesus, come build your church. Thank you that you really are. Thank you the gates of hell will not prevail. Thank you that you are all in all. You are all in all and our lives are hidden in you. Lord, would you captivate our hearts afresh for kingdom advance and guard this mission whilst guarding community? Would you increasingly uh, open our eyes to the parts and roles that we have to play? Would you, those who've stepped up and you have equipped, Lord, would you help us to recognize and call out and push into new things for your glory and the extension of the kingdom? Jesus, I thank you so much for everybody who calls this church their home. Thank you that you love them greatly and dearly. I just pray now you would heap your blessing upon us as a people. So we take seriously your commission to go and make disciples, family members and missionaries of all nations to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.